All right. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Clayton Hester here from the Digital News Desk. Uh, we're glad to have you here. It's time once more for By the Bushel. And uh, we have with us today Barry Bean. Oh, that's not the right tag. We have Barry Bean with us here today um, to discuss some of the latest news and headlines from the world of agribusiness. Barry, how are you today? Well, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I'm perfectly happy to talk money, too. We're going to talk money quite a bit. But, uh, but yeah, things, things are going well. Our crops are looking good. Um, you know, we have had a few, a few exciting weather moments uh, down here in the boot heel in the last few days. Uh, I did see a, a friend's farm uh, yesterday who, uh, who unfortunately got, got hit by a hailstorm and now has um, about 200 acres of uh, toothpicks down near, down near Hornersville. But, um, but all in all, things, things look good and things are going well. All right, wonderful to hear it. And um, as as you mentioned, uh, the the money always always talking. It's it's one of those things you can't have the bushel without the money. Those two, it's like love and marriage, as uh, I guess Frank saying. And uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and so uh, speaking of the money and the commodities, can you can you give us a, a little bit of a look at where we are uh, in the commodities market today? Absolutely. Let's uh, let's just jump right over here to. Uh... To our, to our futures, and uh, as you can see today, the uh, December cotton closed at 81.68. That was up three points. Uh, spent most of the day in the uh, in the off column, but uh, ended up coming back up by the end of the day. Um, next year's cotton at uh, cotton at uh, December 24 cotton is at 78.01. Still off a little bit. Looking at the corn, corn was at five dollars and a half. Um, that's up 16 and three quarters. Soybeans are at 13.69 and three quarters. That's up 42 cents. Very strong rally there. Uh, rough rice was at a 15.30 up, 15.38. That's up 40 cents. And uh, the uh, current crop wheat is at 6.27 and a half, up six and a half. And the new crop wheat is at 6.59 and a half, up seven and a quarter. And uh, you know, it's it's always worth taking just a a, a quick look to get a feel of the uh, financial markets are uh, largely positive. Um, although today, as we will be uh, talking here uh, very shortly, we are seeing that the uh, that the dollar is a little bit weaker today, which is actually good news for the uh, for the commodities. Now, let me just hop back over to our. Uh, if I can get my. Um, okay. You know, there's 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 days that the technology plays well with me, and uh, there's days that it that it doesn't. This today would fall in the in the uh, latter category. So, uh, <laughs> if you'll please be patient with me while I try to get this to uh, stop sharing this particular screen. Um, Absolutely, it has those temperamental days. It wakes up on the wrong side of the the interweb, I guess. Ah. Okay, and and here we go. We we are we are back, but um. Before, before I get too far into the uh, reactions and the other news, um, I do want to, uh, the biggest news item of the 
past week is uh, yesterday's WASDE report. So I do want to go through that and uh, hit a couple of the numbers. Um, in wheat, um, and, I'm, and I'll read here so that I, I did not commit the entire report to memory today, but uh, the, the changes this month uh, include increased supplies and domestic use, exports unchanged, but increased ending stocks, which is uh, not friendly to wheat, although you really couldn't tell it from, uh, from looking at those futures, which I'm going to uh, Pull, pull back up here so I can hop on over there. Uh, they, they left exports unchanged, increased ending stocks with larger production, which is up 74 million bushels at a 1.739 million on higher harvested area and yields. This is uh, going to be some news to uh, some of the guys over in Kansas who are having a challenge, although, um, you know, for instance, here in Missouri, most of the wheat is harvest, harvested, and uh, this year the uh, wheat harvest in the U.S. is pretty spotty. Uh, conversely, uh, winter wheat production is forecast higher on a larger harvested area and higher yields, so uh, they are expecting, uh, expecting good things to uh, continue on wheat. Um, the uh, gains for all wheat production are partially offset by lowered beginning stocks, uh, which were lowered by 18 million bushels to 580 million, as indicated on the grain stocks report that came out on June 30th. The uh, projected season average farm price to uh, producers is 750 a bushel, down 20 cents a bushel from last month. Um, looking at the uh, world outlook, we're looking at reduced supplies, increased consumption, and lower exports with decreased stocks um, to uh, to end. So, kind of a mixed bag. Still, no radical news on wheat. Looking at at corn, they're looking at fractionally higher supplies, mending stocks. Uh, beginning stocks are lower. 50 million bushels on corn as greater feed and residual use for 2022 and 23 more than offset reductions in corn used for ethanol and exports. Corn production for the 23-24 uh, crop year is forecast up 55 million bushels as greater planted harvested area from the June 30th acreage report is partially offset by a four bushel reduction in yield to 177.5 bushels per acre. And uh, there are some folks who still think that's a little bit uh, optimistic. The uh, price received by producers is unchanged at 480 a bushel. Uh, the major global trade changes for 23-24 include larger corn exports for Ukraine with greater imports for the EU. For 2022 and 23, the exports are higher for Brazil but lowered for Argentina. Um, corn exports are also raised for Ukraine, Russia, and the EU but reduced for the U.S. and India. Looking at rice, the outlook for the 23-24 uh, rice crop is for larger supplies, exports, and domestic use. Larger numbers all the way around, but that will result in lower ending stocks. As most of us know, as you certainly know, if you watch the commodities, ending stocks is clearly the most important of these numbers. So slightly lower ending stocks is good for rice producers. Um, the average farm price is uh, projected right now at uh, $17 per hundred weight, down 60 cents from last month on reductions for both long grain and other states' medium and short grain rice. The 23-24 global rice outlook this month is for slightly higher supplies and consumption, increased trade, but greater stocks. So neutral to a mixed bag on, uh, on world uh, rice consumption.
Soybean production is uh, projected at 4.3 billion bushels, down 210 million on lower harvested acres. Uh, harvested area forecast at 83.5 million acres in the June 30th acreage report is down 4 million from last month. Soybean yield forecast is unchanged at 52 bushels per acre which, uh, you know, for, for a lot of our folks around here is uh, is certainly uh, not, not the kind of number that they're looking for. With uh, lower production partially offset by higher beginning stocks, the 23-24 soybean supplies are reduced 185 million bushels. Uh, soybean exports are reduced uh, 125 million bushels to 1.85 billion on lower U.S. supplies and lower global imports, with lower supplies only partially offset by reduced use ending stocks for 23-24 are projected at 300 million bushels, down 50 million from last month. So that should be positive for soybeans, certainly what we saw reflected in today's market. The U.S. season average soybean price for 23-24 is forecast at 12.40 a bushel, up 30 cents from last month. And uh, moving moving right on to uh, to the most important crop that we uh, talk about here, and that is of course cotton. The U.S. 23-24 cotton projections show lower exports and higher beginning and ending stocks. Not a, not a friendly situation. Beginning stocks are 50,000 bales higher due to lower 22-23 disappearance, and 23-24 exports are reduced a quarter million bales due to reductions in projected world trade and U.S. market share. Uh, the U.S. planted area is 169,000 acres lower this month, as indicated by the June 30th acreage report. Harvested area is expected to be up to uh, up 117,000 acres as rainfall in West Texas remains above median levels, and projected U.S. output remains steady at 16.5 million bales. Ending stocks are forecast at 3.8 million bales. We'll go into that a little bit more later. Um, I'm taking this report as neutral to uh, slightly bearish. Um, that is 300,000 300, bales higher than uh, last month's ending stocks. And the projected price received by U.S. upland cotton producers is 76 cents per pound this month, which is one cent lower than in June and is below the cost of production for some producers. For the global 23-24 cotton balance sheet, higher beginning stocks account for most of the 1.7 million bale increase in ending stocks. Beginning stocks are 1.1 million bales higher as a 1.8 million bale increase in estimated 22-23 production spread over India, Brazil, and Australia more than offset a uh, 675,000 bale increase in world consumption. Um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of interesting things to look at there. And uh, going into uh, some of the analysis there, it is important to note that the, uh, that the Chinese purchases are, uh, are leading to, uh, to some concerns that, that we're going to see uh, Chinese demand taper off. Uh, certainly, we've been listening to merchants complain about lower demand for, uh, for exports uh, throughout, throughout this uh, calendar year. And, uh, you know, we've seen the Chinese do this before in uh, 2009, 10, 11, and 12, which led to the First, the highest uh, prices ever recorded for cotton when the Chinese essentially hoarded the world supply and then realized they'd hoarded too much. 
started to dump it on the market, sent the market in a tailspin and destroyed a major portion of the industry. So we'll be uh, keeping a, a good look on that. Um, obviously, as we said initially, um, the, the Grames uh, reacted a little bit negatively to the reports yesterday. But as we talked today with uh, corn up 16 cents, uh, beans up 42 cents, rice up 40 cents, apparently they got over it so uh, not a lot to not a lot to worry about there we're still looking uh, we're still looking at the markets doing what they always do which is confuse any rational observer um, you know, we've been talking in the past uh, several months about the Black Sea grain deal which is the deal that uh, the that the EU and Turkey, primarily Turkey, worked out to uh, keep that Black Sea shipping corridor open for Ukrainian grains. Uh, basically, Ukraine to Europe is what the Midwest U.S. is to, to North America, and uh, there is a substantial portion of the crop that needs to get through that corridor, a corridor that's obviously threatened when uh, one of the world's largest military powers is trying to blockade that with their, uh, with their navy. And um, the EU is stepping in, and they are trying to address some of the Russian concerns. Uh, Russians have objected to uh, banking sanctions that have been placed on their assets in Europe that make it difficult for them to uh, sell fertilizer and to sell petroleum, um, both things that the world uh, needs. Um, and so they have threatened to shut down the corridor in order to get concessions there. With the EU stepping in now, we're not going to hold our breath on that, but it, there is the potential that we could see uh, could see some motion there. Uh, they are in new talks. Uh, this this deal could end as early as the end of this week, but we've been playing brinksmanship with this uh, for a while, and all the parties involved are uh, are used to this by now. One final uh, headline here before we start getting into uh, stories, and uh, that is that the. Uh, that the United States government weather forecaster uh, said that there is a more than 90% chance that El Nino conditions will, will continue in the Northern Hemisphere throughout 2023-24. So uh, some of the weather patterns we're seeing right now that are a little different than what we've seen for the past four or five years should uh, continue, and this obviously leads to an awful lot of uncertainty. In the long run, it should lead to some higher commodity prices, but unfortunately, that comes on the back of lower production because of uh, crops lost to extreme weather or uh, or, or poor uh, conditions. And uh, you know they uh, they say uh, they they say here's the emergence of an El Nino weather event does threaten to disrupt the already uncertain look. So um, thank you very much, government authorities, for telling us that uh, that that late breaking news. But um, yeah. The, the old uh, adage about if you don't like the weather, stick around for a while, it's going to change. Well, in the macro level, talking about El Nino, if you don't like the weather, too bad, um, at least until uh, until next year sometime. All right. Great stuff. Um, and so then we're looking at the story uh, from a German publication about the uh, about Bayer, or up, up to the north of us, uh, the, the, the corporation, um, selling its crop science division. Now, what, what, what's up with that? We, we would think that that's a, a pretty relevant uh, division, right? Uh, what kind of shift may this mark? Well, it has the potential to be huge for for U.S. agriculture. Well, actually, for world agriculture, but it ha has the potential to have an outsized impact for those of us in Missouri, um, because when we talk about the Bayer 
um, Ag Technology Division, essentially we're talking about Monsanto. Uh, some of y'all may remember that back in 2018, um, Bayer bought Monsanto, and they were uh, they were pretty wildly enthusiastic at that time. Their uh, CEO in June of 2018, um, Werner Baumann, had uh, hailed it as a great day for the world's customers. Um, and unfortunately, in August of that same year, um, the very first of the uh, Roundup lawsuits was settled out in California when a uh, groundskeeper um, alleged that uh, that Roundup had uh, had caused cancer. Now, in the in the subsequent years, uh, Roundup and Monsanto and Bayer have uh, have actually won six consecutive courtroom victories, and the science has been pretty clear that Roundup did not, in fact, cause that cancer. However, the uh, the cost of these lawsuits and the cost of uh, settlements and uh, you know and the the constant barrage now I think most of us probably when we get on Facebook we have all sorts of lawyers uh, certainly if you're in agriculture you have them wanting to know if you've used this chemical if you've used that chemical you know basically every chemical we've used over the last 40 years if you've used it somewhere there's an attorney who would like to sign you up for a class action lawsuit against the people that make that chemical to allege that everything you have from your sore back to pimples was caused by that particular uh, chemical. Um, now, we're not saying that uh, chemicals have always been safe or have always been safely used. We, we learn with every generation how to better use the technology, but it's certainly been an expensive process. So looking at this, uh, Bayer is uh, rumored to be talking about selling off Monsanto. We'll just, we'll just call it Monsanto and talk, instead of talking about the, uh, the ag division. Um, this could have major ripples because we don't know what, what Monsanto would look like. It certainly wouldn't look like it did in 2018 when Bayer initially bought it. It wouldn't just, there is no simple off switch where you can go back to where we were. Now, it is worth noting that um, Bayer says that the initial report is based purely on speculation. However, the story has been picked up um, and uh, not verified, but both repeated and investigated by a number of organizations, including Reuters, including several ag organizations um, that, are, that are following it. And it's absolutely something to uh, put on your radar to, to watch if you're involved in agriculture in the state of Missouri. Um, actually, if you're not involved in agriculture, um, Bayer is a huge, huge employer and a huge, huge part of the uh, of the Missouri economy. In fact, along with uh, along with uh, Boeing and McConnell Aircraft, it's it's one of the largest economic players um, in our state. Um, so, uh, if anything that happens up there is going to have an outside um, influence. So we'll be watching that, and of course, this is also, uh, you know, they've also been a, a primary leader in developing ag technology. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the technologies that we have used in the last 40 years to uh, to increase yields, to to reduce the environmental impact, to increase profitability, to fight weeds, to fight bugs. So, seeing that potentially on the uh, Chopping block or on the sales block uh, will uh, will have some uh, will have some long-lasting repercussions, and uh, we're hopeful that whatever it happens, that either Bayer sticks with it and uh, keeps a uh, keeps that present here in Missouri, or if it does sell, that they uh, that they are sold with adequate resources to continue the work that uh, that they've done over the last uh, several generations. So, some big news there to uh, keep an eye on moving forward. 
All right. And can you tell us a little bit then about uh, some of our next headlines? I believe that they, let's see, pardon me, um, involve uh, uh, WASD uh, getting a little bit lower. Oh, well, I think, I think, I think what you're looking for there is, uh, is Kentucky Hill. Kentucky Hill. I believe that would be. Okay. Yes, yes. yes. And, and although my, my notes are in a little bit of a jumble here, too, but um, it is worth noting that, um, you know, we've heard an awful lot, um, not, not just with Amendment 3, but, but before, before recreational marijuana was legalized, um, hemp for, uh, for fiber and hemp for, uh, for, for oil, for CBD oil, has been a, uh, has been a, a growing uh, crop and growing industry for, well, for, for at least the last 10 or 20 years, not, not necessarily always in Missouri, but Kentucky has historically been a leader. Uh, if you know your, your ag history, you know that certainly um, during the first part of the 20th century, Kentucky was the leader um, in hemp, and uh, Kentucky is to hemp what Texas is to, uh, to cotton, or Arkansas is to rice. And, uh, you yeah, they've, they've got the most research, they've got the most acres, they're just way ahead of, of everybody else. Um, well, unfortunately, the uh, hemp boom of the last couple of years is, uh, is causing them some problem, and, uh, and this has become an issue um, over in Kentucky politics as the uh, candidates for the uh, Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner um, are uh, talking about ways to save the hemp industry over there. Now, in Kentucky, the uh, hemp industry is primarily a uh, fiber industry, and they're using uh, hemp fiber not, not just in the clothes that you might see people wear at a Grateful Dead concert or, you know, the little necklaces that you'll sometimes see at a truck stop or somebody selling on the side of the road, but, uh, but they're actually going into, they're, they're competing with wood, they're competing with, uh, with cotton and cellulose for, uh, for a lot of other uh, fiber uses. As a matter of fact, uh, to add a little local interest, to this um, here in Peach Orchard, in the big city of Peach Orchard, right? If, if it wasn't for the backlight, I could show you through that window. The, uh, the former Peach Orchard gin, um, a cotton gin that my uh, great-grandfather built back in the 1920s, has uh, recently been um, reconfigured by a, uh, by a company. It's Midwest Natural Fibers um, who, have, uh, who have taken that facility over and are reconfiguring the cotton gin to clean hemp for, uh, for fiber use. Um, initially, uh, I was over there the other day and they were showing me some, uh, some products that they've got that, are, uh, that can be used for, uh, can be used for insulation, can be used for pet bedding, uh, basically can be used for almost anything that, sh that you would use uh, straw or mulch for. And, and then they're looking in the long run at also going for some, uh, for some other fiber uses. Um, and now, now these folks, they're, they're good, they're well-funded, they seem to uh, have have their heads on straight and they're doing a lot of great stuff. What they've run into over in Kentucky is that there are an awful lot of fly-by-night companies that have come in and an awful lot of producers who are eager for an alternative crop, who are struggling with their with their corn, with their beans, with their cattle, and have uh, seen some of the promises of uh, $1,800 per acre net yield. Um, if you can, uh, if everything lines up perfectly and you can grow a crop for CBD oil, um, and what they're finding is, first off, they've had a number of companies that have come in that have 
have made promises, then they have disappeared mid-season. And so there you have a, a producer with, with a whole lot of product that may or may not be legal. He has no market for, and you can't really sell that crop on the open market. That crop has to be contracted and go to somebody uh, since it is being used for uh, for oil, sold for, for human consumption. So uh, anyhow, that is something that, that we'll be watching as the uh, as that campaign for the Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner goes on. But uh, certainly here in Missouri, we are uh, several years behind Kentucky in terms of getting into the hemp business. And uh, so it's worth a uh, cautionary tale to uh, to Missouri producers to uh, talk to some folks in Kentucky. If you are thinking about this as a crop for next year, if you're thinking about this as something to look at, then uh, be sure that your that your partners, whether you're growing for fiber, growing for oil, um, or I mean, obviously there's an extensive licensing process to uh, to grow the marijuana for uh, for recreational or medicinal use. But if you're talking, if you're looking at this as an alternate crop. Be sure that you know who you're talking to. Be sure that they've got references. Deal with some companies that have been around for a few years because the uh, the market is still far, far from stable. And uh, I have talked to folks over at Murray State University, which is the leading university for uh, for hemp and marijuana research. Uh, you know, they have said that in, in their estimation, this is still an immature market and is somewhere between five and 10 years away from being a mature market that is uh, really safe to be uh, entered into as anything other than a speculative venture. So uh, if you've got some acres and money to burn and you're, you're willing to take a chance, there's probably a fortune to be made, but there's also a fortune to be risked. So anyhow, a little news, and you might want to uh, pay attention to Kentucky politics this summer. You'll, you'll probably learn a little bit more about that. All right, yes, very good to keep on the radar and keep aware of um, as things continue to change and we continue to cover the uh, world of agribusiness. And can you then uh, let's let's take a look at um, this dispute involving Mexico and the U.S. Um, revolving around genetic enhancement, right? So that's, it's Mexico uh, was looking to phase out genetically modified corn. And uh, so that's that's causing some some back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? Absolutely. Uh, when uh, when when the the current Mexican president um, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador and and, and my apologies to uh, to all my Spanish speaking friends if I just uh, mauled his name. But when he ran for office, uh, one of his campaign promises was that they would eliminate uh, genetically modified organisms from Mexico. And uh, the first place he wanted to look was corn, um, as we've discussed before. Um, Corn tortillas are very much a staple of the Mexican diet in the same way that rice is a staple of, say, the, the Asian diet. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult for them to, uh, to be comfortable uh, feeding themselves without a steady supply of, uh, of corn tortillas. So they are very sensitive to anything regarding the supply of corn or the price of corn. Um, well, this caused a, a, a problem because, of course, under the uh, USMCA, um, Mexico 
Canada and the U.S. are supposed to essentially be a free trade zone, and there are not supposed to be restrictions on GMOs moving across those borders. If there are any proposed uh, regulations, there's a process they're supposed to go through. Well, Mexico did not go through this. Now, we have talked in the past um, about uh, about this, and it has turned into a full-blown dispute. Uh, Mexico has backed off a little bit. Um, initially, they had uh, they had said that they were going to have a January 2024 deadline to eliminate any genetically modified or GMO corn, which is the vast majority of U.S. grown corn um, going into Mexico. They have modified that. They've they've kicked that back now to uh, to July of 2024, and they're still going to allow GMO corn to come in for the for use as uh, animal feed. Um, but this dispute does continue. And uh, just uh, this spring, uh, Congressman Jason Smith, um, our our congressman here in the uh, 8th District, our U.S. congressman who sits on the uh, powerful Ways and Means Committee, um, you're, you're forbidden to mention that without throwing the word powerful in there, but uh, he did take a, a bipartisan group of federal legislators down there to meet with uh, with officials in Mexico City to, to discuss this dispute, and organizations like National Corn Growers and Missouri Farm Bureau continue to work on this, but um, yeah, there is some progress being made, but it has advanced now to, to, a, to a full-blown uh, dispute negotiation. Up to now, there's been a lot of saber-rattling, and, uh, you know, and, and thanks to uh, to Farm Bureau, Missouri Farm Bureau's National Legislative Director Spencer Tuma for uh, for a couple of uh, couple of updates on that. So, um, more news to watch if you're if you're growing corn. Now, of course, if you're growing non-GMO corn, it's still probably a great time to uh, try to find some uh, companies in Mexico that want to buy your product. But uh, for the rest of us, it'll be something to watch. And certainly, as we move into the fall and winter, and you start looking at. Uh, at um, crops and planting intentions for next year, you'll want to keep a close eye on that because Mexico does account for a substantial portion of uh, the Missouri cotton, I mean, corn crop, rather. All right. Okay. And so as we look then ahead, I believe that brings us along to our invasive species of the week. Yeah. Can you, can you share more about, uh, about what we're looking at this week? I absolutely can, and and I have to tell you, I'm very, very excited about this particular invasive species, because in the past, we've had invasive species, that some that were terrifying, some that were amusing, some that were simply annoying. Well, today we have an invasive species you can make some money off of, um, so you you actually could go out and 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 earn yourself a little uh, you know a little a little money to to offset all the money that you that you lost when your when your hemp crop uh, didn't get picked up or your corn didn't get exported to Mexico. Well, maybe you can go out and find some black carp. And uh, the deal is here that uh, there are several hundred black carp that have been reported in the Mississippi River Basin. Uh, there was a study released uh, back at the end of the year, at the end of last year, by researchers from SIU, the U.S. Geological Survey. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Missouri State University, and the Department, Missouri Department of Conservation that found black carp have actually been established in the Mississippi River Basin. This is not simply a case of a, of a few that somebody let, let out of, 
of, of their own pond or something. Now, black carp are uh, native to Eastern Asia, and they were introduced in the U.S. in the 1970s and 1980s in imported contaminated grass carp stocks that were shipped to private uh, fish farms. Now, there are very, very strict regulations on how these fish are to be kept, how they should get out, and um, no one, the USGS says they really don't know how these black carp uh, got out, but it is very clear that they have. The species has now been reported in the Mississippi River, as well as the Kaskaskia, Horseshoe Lake, the Illinois River, the Ohio River, and more. Um, they have reports, they've, they've started a database of black carp sightings, and they have reports going back as far as 2013 that they are picking up. Um, this year, between the uh, Mississippi River, the Ohio River, Illinois River, and Horseshoe Lake, there have been 58 reports added to the database, and there have been 1,038 reports in the database since 2013. Um, although black carp have been reported in the U.S. for years, the December study was the first time researchers have been able to prove, provide strong evidence showing the species has established itself. Um, this is clearly a big problem um, because uh, if it was just a few lone fish floating around out there, we wouldn't be that worried. But they are establishing themselves as a population. Um, now, also, it's worth noting the reason that they're a problem, um, other than just introducing a new species that you could go out and, and catch, um, is that they eat freshwater mussels. Now, again, some of y'all are scratching your heads saying, why do I care about freshwater mussels? Well, there are 70 freshwater mussels native to Missouri, and native mussels actually provide water filtration services to the Mississippi River. Um, mussels are one of the places that pull pollutants, pull sediment, pull nutrients out of the water, and, and they actually do clean, clean the water. So we want to keep these species out there, keep them alive, keep them in good health. The black carp feed on mussels and snails, and uh, as some of y'all may know, some of these mussels and snails are already endangered, and uh, you know we're not we're not wild about what happens when they hit the endangered list and we start seeing agricultural limitations based on that. So uh, we, we really need to take care of these, uh, in these, these species that are coming, these invasive species that are coming in and eating our, uh, our native species. So what should you do if you find a black carp? Um, because it is invasive, um, possession of live black carp is illegal. So if you catch a black carp, um, the United States Geological Survey says you should keep, cool, and call. Um, so you should keep the fish, kill it, they say in a humane way, and uh, put it in a cooler and then call the United States Geological Survey, the Missouri Department of Conservation, the Illinois Department of Conservation, or your local university extension, um, and you know that will that will be how how you would move on there. Uh, fishers are asked to identify the species, to keep it, note the location where it was found, and to take photos of the fish. This helps to eliminate uh, false IDs or or thinking that the fish is somewhere that it isn't. Um, 
So the USGS provides a contact list with email addresses and phone numbers uh, that vary based on where, where it was caught. Now, this is where it gets exciting, where it's different than other invasive species. If you take the time to turn in any black carp you catch, you may be eligible for a $100 per carcass bounty funded by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Now, the reimbursements are limited to 10 awards per person per month, and they are subject to funding availability. But still, if, you, if you've got a, a black carp hole out there and you follow these instructions, you could potentially bring home $1,000 a month. Now, it is worth noting that uh, at least once before, the funding for the program did run out. But right now, there's plenty of funding. So uh, if you do happen to uh, catch a black carp, um, please uh, take a picture of it, stick it in a cooler, and call the uh, Illinois Department of Natural Resources or the uh, United States Geological Survey. And if you go to uh, if you go to the web, to the state of Illinois, uh, you can find... Um, a little more information for where to turn those in and uh, hopefully where to collect your bounty for uh, for turning in an invasive species and uh, saving saving a few uh, natural uh, and native uh, mussels and snails out there Absolutely. so so there you go yeah <laughs> how how to make money and catch invasive species that's, that's a win-win <laughs> that is the best that's got to be the best feeling getting paid to <laughs> to catch an invasive species and and uh, we do love having those opportunities and being made aware of all of these uh, these great uh, opportunities to 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 uh, to uh, fix up our ecosystems here on By the Bushel with Barry Bean. Thank you so much for being here today, Barry. We appreciate your time. Well, it's always my pleasure. Always my pleasure. I'll, I'll maybe I can find an even better invasive species for next week. That sounds great. <laughs> and if you can make money with it. You just let us know, but uh, <laughs> uh, we appreciate. If I miss the show, it's because I was out looking for black carp. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we might have to do one in the field to 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 go out and try to catch some uh, some and do a special report. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, uh, as always, to our audience, we appreciate you all tuning in, being here with us here on the KFES Digital Channel. You can watch us over the website, kfes12.com slash live stream. You can check us out online um, in that great location as well as on, over Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, all of those as well. And don't download and, and do download the KFES weather, or weather app and news app where the news app is where you'll find us. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Uh, we're going to turn you back over to local news live. <laughs> we'll talk to you all later.